glad to see you all today, and uh, I am certainly looking forward to our new series. Uh, we're not going to be covering the entire book of Genesis. Um, one to three are daunting enough, so we will. Uh, it's been uh, it's been quite a, a week or two here getting ready for for just these two verses. Um, but anyway, I'm I'm excited about what we're going to be studying here over the next couple of months in Genesis one to three. Really looking forward to it. Hope it'll be. Uh, beneficial and encouraging and challenging for you as well. Um, a few years ago, I uh, read a book, I think I actually listened to a book, an audio book, um, about the Apollo space missions. I don't know if you have been interested in those before, but um, interest in space is something that uh, was passed down to me from my mom and dad, and so we uh, have always appreciated and enjoyed reading and watching movies about space exploration. Uh, my parents were Trekkies, so uh, sorry, sorry to out you, Dad, but uh, you know, um, we, we've always appreciated that. But I read this, this book, listened to this book about the Apollo space missions that took place in the 1960s. Some of you remember those well. Um, obviously, those missions culminated in us landing several different astronauts on the moon. And people, when they think about the Apollo space missions, they think about probably maybe two in particular, uh, Apollo 11, which was you know, the first one that actually uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. Maybe you think about Apollo 13, um, the Tom Hanks movie uh, where everything went wrong and we brought them safely back to Earth. Maybe you think about Apollo 1, uh, where the astronauts died very tragically in a fire uh, there on the uh, training pad. Um, but the, the mission as I read this book uh, that captured my attention the most was actually Apollo 8. In the 1960s, NASA had the goal of putting a man on the moon by the end of the century. President Kennedy had challenged us with that, and so NASA was working very hard to accomplish that. And in December of 1968, time was drawing very short for us to do that. So, the Apollo 8 mission launched on December 21st, and their goal in their, of course, all the different missions are leading up in stages to actually landing someone on the moon and exploring the moon. But the Apollo 8 mission had the goal of leaving Earth's orbit for the first time and actually orbiting the moon, another celestial body. So no human being had ever orbited another celestial body before, and these astronauts would be the furthest that any astronauts had ever, that any human being had ever been from our planet before. And so they launched on December 21st, 1968, and on Christmas Eve, 1968, they made it to the moon's orbit, and they orbited the moon 10 times. It was the first time that a human being had ever had this perspective on the earth. That picture is actually taken, that's a very it's an iconic photograph, but that picture was actually taken from the Apollo 8 spacecraft in 1968. They watched the earth rise up over, over the lunar landscape and saw everything from this perspective, which is just crazy, I love that picture. So the plan on Christmas Eve was to do a live television broadcast from the Apollo 8 spacecraft as they're orbiting the moon. And the folks at NASA told the astronauts that they would have the largest audience of people listening at one time to a single voice that had ever been assembled on planet Earth before to that point. So 
pressure's kind of high. But their instructions to the astronauts were only say something appropriate. <laughs> sort of leaving it up to them to decide what they're going to say to millions and millions and millions of people. So think about that for a second. You're in a spaceship. You've just done something that no human being has ever done before. You're seeing our planet from a perspective that no one else has ever seen our planet from. You're looking down on this planet, and every person that has ever lived existed on this blue planet that you're looking at, and every other person who's alive is living on this planet you're looking at. Millions of people are going to be listening to you, and the only instructions you get are say something appropriate. What would you say? Thinking back on all the poetry that's ever been written in the annals of human history, what would be the thing that you would want to say to everyone on earth? And I'd like to read you a portion of the transcript from that broadcast. You can actually go on YouTube and watch the broadcast uh, if you want to this afternoon. Here's what they said. For all the people on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. And so they read the first 10 verses, each of the astronauts, the three of them taking several of the verses and reading in succession the first 10 verses. And there obviously was nothing more appropriate that they could have read. No poetry can match the description of Genesis 1, of the creation of this planet that they were looking at. And these words are the defining words of humanity. These, these words tell us who we are, and they describe to us how the world that we inhabit came to exist. And these words give us the most fundamental reality about who we are as human beings. We are created by God. Nothing else is more important or more influential on your life and my life today than the fact that you and I were created by God. And this planet that we inhabit was created by God as well, and that he is the creator of everything that exists. And so this perspective that the astronauts had was certainly unique, and they read, I think, the appropriate passage. In these next few weeks, I want to try to give us a biblical perspective on the beginning of everything, the creation of the world from Genesis 1 to 3. And this is a monumental passage. I mean, there there may be no other passage that's been more thoroughly studied and analyzed and talked about and debated in many ways than, than this passage, these passages. I mean, really, everything goes back to this. And so it will determine what you think about who you are. It will determine what you think is wrong with the world. It will determine where you think the world is headed. 
Everything goes back to this. And so the perspective that we need to have from this is a perspective that will reorient ourselves and, and the way we live our lives to God. And that's the goal. So today we're going to start this out, and we're only going to tackle two verses. Now, the rest of the series won't go this slowly. I have the whole thing plotted out, and it'll only be a couple of months, and, and we're going to kind of go in fits and starts. We're going to, next week, we're going to take uh, chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, cover the whole thing. I want you to see the whole scope of the seven days of creation, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to talk about the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and what it means to be made in the image of God. And then we'll do chapter two, the whole thing. And then we'll go back and we'll talk about the marriage between Adam and Eve. And so we're going to kind of do a big chunk, and then we'll go back and analyze a, a littler chunk and study a littler chunk together. So today we're going to do verses one to two, and we're going to see five questions and answers regarding creation that provide a biblical framework for our lives. So five questions and answers regarding creation is what we're going to look at today from verses 1 and 2. And the first question should be obvious enough. Who created everything? A few years ago, it was the first summer we were here in Michigan. Bethany and I had the opportunity to fly to Montana. And I've told you this before. We got to a couple of our college students were getting married out there, so they invited us out for me to participate in the wedding. And uh, we realized that we were only an hour and a half from Yellowstone National Park. Neither of us had ever been there before. And so we said, man, we've got to go if we're that close. And it's, if you've never been there, it's just, it's impossible to describe the nature of the scenery that's there. It is breathtaking. It is awe-inspiring. It's majestic in every possible way. From the snow-capped mountains, yes, they were snow-capped in June. It actually snowed while we were there, driving up one of the mountains. But from the snow-capped mountains, the beauty of the valleys under those mountains, to the herd of bison that was running down the road next to our vehicle, to the mother black bear with her cubs, everything was amazing. The natural world is overwhelming. And when you see the natural world like that, you have a sense of awe and a sense of wonder at the natural world. That sense of wonder is described by one author, G.K. Chesterton, like this, and I want you to take note of this. I'd always believed that the world involved magic, and that's that sense of wonder that you get. And now I thought that perhaps it involved a magician. And this pointed to a profound emotion, always present and subconscious, that this world of ours has some purpose. And if there is a purpose, there is a person. I'd always felt life first as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. And the profound wonders of the natural world, which I know you've experienced before, ought to cause us to reflect on who is this magician behind this. Who orchestrates this and causes it to be like this? Who is the storyteller behind the story that we are experiencing? And the Bible leaves no doubt as to who this magician and this storyteller is. It's right there in the first few words of Genesis chapter 1. Look there with me. In the beginning, God. He's the subject. Now, I don't often, you'll notice, quote Greek or Hebrew words in sermons. I don't know that it's always that helpful, but I'm going to do that this morning because I think it is helpful here. The Hebrew word here for God is Elohim in this verse, and this is the word that's used throughout chapter 1, Elohim. Now, 
This particular word, Elohim, focuses on God as divine, as transcendent. And this word is not exclusive to the God of the Bible. You can read this word used other places to describe the gods of the nations. And this word is focusing on the fact that this being is divine. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, you see a shift in God's name. So now when you get to Genesis 2 and verse 4, now you'll see in your Bible there it says Lord God. And in Hebrew, that is Yahweh Elohim. And that Yahweh Elohim in Genesis 2-4, that God is identified with the Elohim of Genesis chapter 1. So the God who creates everything is the Lord God of Genesis chapter 2. Why is that so important? Well, Genesis chapter 2, we'll see this as we study, but it narrows the account of creation to God's relationship with human beings, to Adam and Eve, his specific creation of Adam and Eve. And it presents Adam as being in a covenantal relationship with God. Yahweh is God's covenantal name. And so what you've got here is you've got the God of creation being identified with the God of a relationship with humankind, with a covenantal God. Now, keep in mind, Genesis is not written in a vacuum. It's very easy to read these first three chapters and think of these in isolation from the rest of the Pentateuch, from the rest of the books of Moses. But this is the beginning. This is the part, part of the story of Israel's history and of their relationship with God and their relationship to him as his chosen covenantal people. And so what we learn from this name here and its use of the same person in in Genesis 2, Yahweh God, is that the covenantal God of Israel is the creator God of the universe. It's the same individual. And that may surprise you to learn that in the ancient Near East, around where Israel was when Moses was writing this, but in the ancient Near East, there were other accounts of the beginning of the world. There were Mesopotamian accounts, there were Babylonian accounts, there were Egyptian accounts of the beginning of the world. In fact, you can go online this afternoon and you can read those accounts. And it's interesting when you start to read those accounts because they do show some similarities to the Genesis account. They talk about the same things in some ways, and we'll we'll discuss why they show some similarities as we go on, but I just want to note that they do show some similarities the beginning here. But obviously, they also show significant differences. In those stories, the Babylonian account of creation, the Egyptian account of creation, there are always multiple gods who are involved in creation, and they're always in conflict with one another. They're always fighting, and oftentimes the world arises out of that conflict. And those gods appear very human-like in many ways. I mean, you read about them and you think they're basically just Avengers, right? They're just, they're just supermen. They're just like us, but they're just bigger and stronger and more powerful. They fall in love. They have children. They get envious of one another. They fight with one another. But the Genesis account of creation, for some of the similarities, and we'll talk about why they're similar, But the Genesis account of creation presents God as radically different from those accounts of creation and the gods that make the world in those those accounts. 
In this account of creation, God has no rival. There's no conflict. He stands alone, above time, and apart and distinct from creation. It doesn't emanate from him. He creates it, and it stands apart from him. Everything that exists depends 100% on this God who creates. And the Genesis account of creation tells us that the God who creates is the God who is revealed to us throughout the rest of Scripture. It's the same one. Human beings have a terrible, terrible tendency and history of manufacturing gods in our own image and in our likeness. But the creation account ought to demolish that sinful and idolatrous practice. The God who creates is the master of all, and he is unlike us and distinct from what he has made. And it is to him that we are accountable. And it is to him that we are made to know. And so the creation story is radically God-centered. Everything starts with him. In the beginning, God. The God of the Bible, the covenantal God of Israel. And our lives ought to be radically God-centered as well because it is he who has made us, as we read in Psalm 100 this morning. So this God, the covenant God of the Bible, creates. That's who does it, and we'll learn more about him as we go along. But when did he do this work of creation? That's our second question this morning. Who created? When did he create? The answer, of course, is right there in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. And so in, in the other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation, you always read about pre-existing matter. There's always this stuff with which the gods make the world out of. In one of the stories, the first god climbs out of the chaotic water that exists and this hill comes out of the water, and he climbs up this hill, and he sits down on this hill, and he begins touching body parts, and different gods come out of his body parts as he touches them, and ultimately creation happens as a result of that. In the Genesis account, there's no pre-existing matter. Nothing exists other than this God. There's no dust cloud floating in space. There's no random elements that are swirling around with the potential to explode. There's only God above time existing in eternity, and everything that exists exists by his divine will. Now, when you read this in Genesis 1, in the beginning, when you read that word beginning, what typically goes with the beginning? An ending. The God who is above time creates time here, and he then acts within time, and his actions are moving all of creation toward its appointed end. Everything is going somewhere, and you pick that up from the very first words of the Bible. He created history and time, and he reveals himself in history, and he does his work in time. And so from that, we can say that all of Scripture is eschatological. Now, not 
eschatological in the sense that all of Scripture is trying to help us uncover the details of what will happen in the future related to the millennium and the rapture and all of that. But all of Scripture is eschatological in the sense that it is all building from the moment of creation toward God's appointed end. And if you think about it, that is exactly how you and I make sense of our lives. There's a beginning and there will be an end. Our lives begin when we're born, and that's how we start to tell the story of who we are. And then our lives one day will end, and we know that, and we feel this progression to our lives that they're leading somewhere. But in order to make sense of your life, you have to fit your life within a larger story. Your life actually didn't begin in one sense the moment you were born. You had parents, and they had parents. And you live in a particular time and place, and your life fits within this broader cultural story that is going on. Every person does this. Every person acknowledges that their lives are a story and that we fit within a story. And most people don't even think about the story that they believe they are inhabiting. The culture dictates that story to them, and they sort of live subconsciously as if the story the culture is telling them is true. Cultures are shaped by the stories that they tell people about the world and how you fit into that world. So let's ask ourselves this question. What story is our culture telling people that they live in? Well, today, the dominant story that people are being told is a story of evolutionary progress. Everything is moving forward, it's progressing, it's advancing. There will be greater and greater technological advancements. There will be greater personal autonomy. I mean, you can even hear this when people say, don't be on the wrong side of history. There's a sense in which they feel like everything is going to make progress and get better. But where does this story of mankind coming into being apart from a benevolent and powerful creator end. If that's the way it begins, where does it end? Listen to C.S. Lewis describe this. The drama proper, so the world we see now, is preceded by the most austere of all preludes, the infinite void and matter endlessly, aimlessly moving to bring forth it knows not what. Then by some millionth, millionth chance, what tragic irony, the conditions at one point of space and time bubble up into that tiny fermentation which we call organic life. At first, everything seems to be against the infant hero of our drama, that organic life. Just as everything always was against the seventh son or ill-used stepdaughter in a fairy tale. But life somehow wins through. With incalculable sufferings against all but insuperable obstacles, it spreads, it breeds, it complicates itself from the amoeba up to the reptile, up to the mammal. And then Lewis goes on for several pages to describe the supposed ascent of man. And he says, if we really believe this progression of a story, then we have to assume that mankind will eventually become and make progress into some sort of a demigod, and then ultimately to some sort of divinity. If that idea of ongoing progress and upward advancing evolution is true, if everything is moving from lesser to greater, then how will that story ultimately end? This is what he says. It ends this way. All this time, nature, 
The old enemy, who only seemed to be defeated, has been gnawing away silently, unceasingly, out of the reach of human power. The sun will cool, all suns will cool, the whole universe will run down. Life, every form of life, will be banished without hope of return from every cubic inch of infinite space. All ends in nothingness. Universal darkness covers all. If all begins in the void, and ends in universal darkness, then why does it matter if you're kind to your neighbor today? It doesn't at all. Everybody's living out of a story. And what's amazing is people will verbally affirm this story that I've just read to you from C.S. Lewis. Everything began in a void, and eventually the sun's going to sort of burn out, and it's all going to end in a void. But they don't really live out the implications of that story. It's very difficult to live that out. And so for believers, for you and I, the beginning of the story matters significantly. It matters for personal ethics. It matters in everyday life. And I think this beginning of the story and the implications of that for everyday life are significant points for evangelism and apologetics, the way we talk about our faith. Are the people around you living out the implications of the story that they say they inhabit? What story are they believing that they inhabit? How does it begin? What's it headed toward? How does it end? So we've asked who, we've asked when, and now we want to ask what. Who created? When did he create? What did he create? Look again at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the heavens and the earth are complementary opposites. They go together, and they cover everything in between. It's like saying east and west. It's like saying north and south. It's like saying light and darkness. They're, they're complementary opposites, and they include everything in between. And so what this is telling us is that everything that exists, exists because God created it. The heavens and the earth, all of it. But I want you to notice the, the initial reality of the creation. Look at verse 2. Christians have often struggled with, with verse 2 and how to fit this verse into the creation account. I'll read it to you. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what we like to do is we like to jump right to verse 3. And God said, let there be light, because light is a really fun thing to think about. God speaking into existence is the very first thing that happens, but that's not what the text says. So people have tried all sorts of things to deal with this, to deal with verse 2. Some Christians have tried to say that verse 1 is the first creation, where God created everything, and everything was full and rich, and it was how God intended it to be. And then at some point after that initial creation, some tragic event happened, perhaps Satan's fall with his angels. And so then verse 2 in this theory is that it, verse 2 is describing God, God's judgment on the world. It was void and without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And so they'll say there was a period of time in between verses 1 and verse 2. And then when you get to verse 3, verse 3 in this way of putting things, is God's recreation of the world. It's him starting over again and remaking the world. 
I'm sure you've all heard some form of that. It's called the gap theory most of the time. I'm not going to go into the details because it's a little bit complicated, but the grammar of verse 2 and verse 1 doesn't actually fit with that view. Verse 2 is concurrent with verse 1. It doesn't follow after verse 1 based on the grammar here, okay? So it goes with verse 1. It's telling you when he created the heaven and the earth what it looked like initially here. It's the original situation of the world when God created it on day one. So here's what happens. This is all on day one. Before God creates light day and night on day one, he creates the form of the earth. But notice the three phrases in verse two that describe this form. I think I put these on the screen. I did. Without form and void... Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the face of the water. So you've got these three descriptions of God's creation at this point. Now, God's creation at this point is uninhabitable by human beings or by animals. These words here, without form and void, they actually rhyme in Hebrew, but it means a wasteland. It's, it's void of life. It's uninhabitable. You can even translate one of these words as vanity. It's not very useful at this point. It's a place of darkness. It's covered by water. But you'll notice here the third phrase, God's spirit is hovering over the water. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, um, it's, the elements of creation are, are fighting against the gods and they're in competition with one another. But that's not what you see here. God's Spirit is hovering over the waters. Think of a mother eagle hovering over the nest of her young ones, protecting them and taking care of them. And what that tells us here is that as God has created the form of the earth and it's uninhabitable to human life at this point, it's not out of his control. He's watching over it. He's protecting it. He's guiding what is happening here. And he's going to bring it to full fruition and usefulness. And so what happens here is he initially creates the form of the world in verse 2, and he's preparing it for life and for beauty, which will happen in verses 3 through 31. Now, this actually matches the movement of creation in the rest of the creation account. You may not have known this before, but the creation account comes to us in two sets of three days, and they match one another very, very well. This is not accidental. I'll show this to you. Day one, God creates light and darkness. And then the corresponding day with that is day four, where he fills out the light and the darkness. And so you've got a general creation in days one, two, and three, and then you've got him specifically filling those days out in days four, or days, yeah, days four, five, and six. So day one, light and darkness. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. He fills the night sky. He fills the day sky, the light. Day two, he separates the water. And if you read, we'll look at this next week, but if you read about day two, there's already water there, as we saw previously in verse two. But on day two, he separates the waters above and below. He doesn't necessarily create them. And then day five, what does he do? He puts birds in the waters above, and he puts fish in the waters below. And then day three, there's dry land, and there's plants. And then on day six, he fills 
the dry land with animals and with life and every creeping thing, as it says. And so you can see from this, the entire account moves from general to specific. And I think that's what's happening with verse 2. You've got this general form of the earth being created, and then verses 3 to 31 give us the particulars and the specifics of the world we now know. But the bottom line is that God created all of it, and he owns all of it. We'll look at this in more detail later. Fourth question, how? How did he create it? In the other pagan creation stories, the gods create by a variety of methods. Some of them use sexual reproduction. Some of the Babylonian gods spit and create things. Others fought, injured one another, and created the world as it exists. But obviously, you don't read that in Genesis. In Genesis, God creates by his powerful voice and by his spoken word. And we won't go into the implications of that now, but it has massive importance for how we understand God's working in the world today through his word. And it has important implications for our lives and the way we respond to his word. So how does he create? We'll see this next week by his word. And then our fifth question, why? Why does he create all of this? So who creates? When does he create? In the beginning, leading toward an end, what does he create? Everything that exists, how by his spoken word, and why? Why does this happen? In the pagan stories, human beings are slaves to the gods. They're used to make food for the gods. Sometimes in the pagan stories, the gods accidentally create the world. Oops. And it comes into existence. In Genesis, God creates by his perfect and intentional will. But why does he do this? If you're perfectly happy in the fellowship of the Trinity, why bring anything into existence? Why does he create? Well, I think there are two answers to that question. One I'm not going to give you and one I am going to give you. I will give it to you eventually, but the first one is the one I'm not going to give you today, but let me just say it's very specific, and we will uncover that answer as to why God created as we go through this passage, as we get into the creation of human beings and God's placement of them in the garden and the tasks that he gives them in the garden. We'll uncover his purposes and his plans for us and for all of creation. It'll become more clear as we go through this passage and do this study. And my goal in doing that is that your purpose and my purpose in life will become more clear as we uncover why God created human beings. The second answer to that is a little more general, and that's the one I want to try to answer a bit this morning. Why did God create anything? There's one author that I've found very helpful on this, and Jonathan Edwards is his name. He wrote a book exploring this exact question. The book is called The End for Which God Created the World. Pretty good, uh, good title there. And here's what he says. For it appears that all that is ever spoken of in the Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. So, you hear that and you go, okay, well, what does that mean? 
I mean, that sounds nice. It sounds important and big and theological, and I've heard that before. Everything is to be done for the glory of God, but what does that mean? Well, Edward says in this book that God's glory, that we glorify God when we view His character qualities, who He is, and we have knowledge of His excellency. So what role do you and I play in creation? We are the ones who are to view and to know God's excellency. We're to be enamored with his character. And the amazing thing about this goal that God has for us, that we would simply view and be enamored with his character and his excellency, that we would know who he is. The amazing thing about that ultimate goal for creation is that when you and I do view his glory and behold his excellency, it is for our good, and it is for our happiness. Edwards goes on to say, Thus, it is easy to conceive how God should seek the good of the creature consisting in the creature's knowledge and holiness and even his happiness from a supreme regard to himself. So when your supreme regard, when my supreme regard is God, that's what ultimately leads to our happiness. In beholding God's glory, in esteeming and loving it and rejoicing in it, and in his exercising and testifying love and supreme respect to God, which is the same thing with the creature's exalting God as his chief good and making him his supreme end. And so God's ultimate end for his creation and for the people that inhabit his creation is our ultimate good. They go hand in hand together. And so at the highest possible level, we can say that our goal, our purpose, our mission in life this morning is to find our happiness in beholding God's character and his excellency. That's what we're created to do at the highest possible level. Now, how we actually function in doing that in all the arenas of life is what we'll discover as we go through these chapters over the next few weeks. But ultimately, I hope that this series and this study will encourage you in this direction to make God the creator of everything, the one who we are accountable to, that you and I will make him our supreme and highest regard every single day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for these words from your word. We're thankful that you, you don't leave us in doubt as to how the world began. We don't have to fumble around, try to reason ourselves to this, the answers to these questions. You make it very plain and very clear. And our lives find meaning and purpose and happiness within the answers to these questions. You are the supreme good for us. And we want to see and behold your excellency and your character and find our happiness there. I pray that you would bless this study. I pray that you would enrich us through it, give us greater purpose and passion for you and to see your glory spread throughout the entire world. We love you. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you that you are our creator. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.